Hello, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Wake Up Human podcast. I'm your host, Shannon Wills, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to the Wake Up Human podcast. I'm Shannon Wills, a curious wanderer with a passion for digging into life's mysteries and mining them for wisdom to apply to our modern lives. This podcast explores the ways we humans have become disconnected from our native ways of knowing, what we have lost, and what we can gain by coming back into wholeness. Each episode will explore this theme of reconnecting with our innate human power in order to heal ourselves, our relationships, and our planet. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let's jump into the latest installment of Wake Up Human. Welcome to the Wake Up Human podcast. Today's guest is Tanya Reikley, an herbalist, ritualist, and author in the Irish Celtic tradition. Tanya is based in Colorado and also lives part-time on the west coast of Ireland. She offers classes on herbalism, ritual, and ceremony, both here and abroad, and has led sacred journeys to Ireland for 13 years, including a year-long mystery school, which begins and ends at Samhain and includes initiation in Ireland. Tanya is the author of Wild Irish Roots, a seasonal guidebook to herbs, ritual, and connection, and The Way of Bridget Oracle Cards, dedicated to Irish goddess and Saint Bridget. My conversation with Tanya centers on the theme of the mythic resistance, exploring myth as a portal to finding our place and our strength within the often confusing matrix of modern cultural and social identities. We'll weave through discussions on myth as teacher and archetype, embodiment of myth as a form of resistance, and the modern conundrum of cultural appreciation versus cultural appropriation. Tanya will also share a couple of myths with us. Stay tuned for conversation on those topics and more coming up next. You can learn more about Tanya and her classes, courses, and other offerings at her website, dancingwiththewild.com. That's dancingwiththewild.com. And now for the interview. Dear Tanya, welcome to the call. I am so grateful for your presence and your time today. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me, Shannon. Well, I have been interested in talking with you for some time now, but it was when I saw a recent message you shared referring to a phenomenon you called the mythic resistance that I knew I had to reach out to you for a conversation. Now, we'll talk about the mythic resistance shortly, but first, I'd like to start by asking you to share a little bit about your journey as an herbalist and ritualist. What was it that called you to the path of herbalism in general and to your focus on the indigenous Celtic myths and ways of Ireland in particular? Mm-hmm. Um. My story with herbalism, I, I guess I would just say I, when I was 30, I found my calling. I had been in the corporate world. I have an MBA and had went through all of that. And I knew that that wasn't nourishing my soul. I knew that that wasn't like a purpose of purposeful endeavor for me to lead my life. And um, I moved to Colorado about that time. And somehow I found um, a herb school in Boulder. And I don't even know, like back then, 20 years ago, it wasn't like you got email newsletters, like they actually put things in the mail, sent them. And um, so I knew that this corporate world wasn't serving and um, I took a leap of faith. Um, I really wanted to do a two, two month journey in Europe and um, the corporate company, um, capitalism, profits over people, all of that um, said, no, they, you know, they're like, Oh, we, we can't hold your job because capitalism. Um, and I was so committed to having this time. Um, and so I quit my job and went to Europe and basically in Ireland, when I, I, I have Irish roots, I have European roots. Um, of course, look at me. Um, and when I, when I arrived to Ireland, it was like I had been on that, like people were familiar, the land was really familiar and things awakened, awakened in me in a really deep way. Um, 
fast forward, came home. I think it was actually three months later because I think we ended up staying an additional month. Um, and here was this on the top of the mail was this um, flyer, you know, come learn herbs. Um, and I did. I said yes. So um, and haven't turned back, looked back since. Um, and and I feel like what I did, anyone can do. It's it's just trusting. It's taking that leap, which is huge when you're making a lot of money in a corporate job and you feel like you need that for security um, and leaving that is not, is everything against um, the American way or the American dream or whatever it may be. So I felt really supported. I took that leap. Herb school happened um, in Boulder, which was amazing. And I knew that I had found my place with the herbs um, I knew I wanted to continue, although I was pursuing different different avenues to continue studying herbalism here. Um, and I was in Whole Foods Market, where I don't shop anymore because they're part of a huge capitalistic bohemian these days. Um, although at the time it was my local, and actually I don't think it was Whole Foods then. It was um, oh, Alpha Alphas or something, you know, mm-hmm. before, when it was still a local um, place. I opened up Herb Quarterly, a magazine, and it said, Come Study Herbs in Ireland. And um, so, and this is a little ad again. This is kind of before, there was some internet, but most things were not happening via the internet. So this little ad led me to my teacher in Ireland and led me to really connecting, re- reconnecting and remembering my roots in Ireland and um even when I so then I spent three months with her studying full-time immersed um came back to the states began my my herbal practice then and even then 20 years ago this would have been this was in 2001 when I came back so yeah almost 20 years ago um 19 years ago I I was I so resonated with the herbs that I learned from Gina, my teacher in Ireland, and the herbs that were of my my roots and the roots of my DNA, these herbs that have been nourishing my DNA for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and it was like 30 herbs. And when I went to the herb school in Boulder, they, they were like, oh, 150 herbs, you know, um, which many of them were Asian in origin and um, Ayurvedic in origin, which is great. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Yet just to to express like my visceral like feeling in my body when I started learning about herbs of my ancestry and my indigenous roots. Mm-hmm. Um, so even 20 years ago, I was um, 19 years ago, 18 years ago, when I started teaching, I was teaching about these herbs of our native European um, traditions and our native European roots. Um, so here we are today. So that's a little bit of my background of, of how all of this came to matter so much for me. And and it's grown over the years as well. Herbs being such a threshold to remembering, um, to, um, the myths and traditions and to the rituals. It's like that because they're so sensual and because they open up this remembering, what comes in from that is, is really powerful and, and, um, formative. Hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the myths because I do want to ask you about those myths in particular going a little bit later. And I love the the synchronicities of your journey, the way that you express them, just watching for those signs, the the uh, the notice from the herb school just sitting on the top of your mail and opening to the just the right page in the quarterly. And uh, and I, I can so relate to what you're saying about that feeling of maybe being stuck, feeling that we're stuck in either a corporate job or some other aspect of the modern world, and so feeling called to explore something that feels more native to us. And that I, I think that there are probably so many people who can relate to that. So your story is actually quite inspiring that you did take that jump and it is scary. I know that, that those things are scary, but you, it sounds like you did it because you had to, you felt you you needed that in your heart. So, you know, um, that can inspire some, someone who might listen. And I really appreciate that part of your, your journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And also to say like, it was, 
Like I, I'm not going to say quit your job tomorrow or anything like that. Although I will give you anyone who is, is really considering that, um, you know, give you tools and give you support, not I, but just know that there are t- so many tools and support out there and including, yeah, support. We don't even, we, the invisible support as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it was like, it took, you know, maybe six months to happen, although I was so, and if you're so committed to something, it will work out. If mm-hmm. it's your commitment and your discipline that will, and along with all the support. Um, the invisible support that will make it happen. Mm. Spoken like someone who has witnessed and experienced that herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Well, now I want to jump into this topic of the mythic resistance. Mm-hmm. Such an exciting term to me. As someone who's continually looking for ways to resist status quo narratives that hold us in these old patterns that often no longer serve us, the term resistance always catches my attention. So there's no question in my mind that there's a need for resistance at this time. So many, so many things need to be resisted. Resistance against structures and systems that perpetuate violence, systems and structures that perpetuate ecological destruction and the like. So there's resistance. But the term mythic resistance is new to me. I never heard it before I read it written by you. So my question is, what exactly is the mythic resistance? And why does it matter today? Yeah, thank you. And I, I think it's really important also to honor our teachers and where these things have taken root with us. So I, I've honored my teacher in Ireland, Gina McGarry, who's very pivotal to where I am today and what I'm able to offer to the world. And she continued, like she's, she's still teaching me. She ever will be my teacher. Mm -hmm. And then the term, the mythic resistance, I believe I first heard this term by a woman called Sharon Blackie. And she wrote a book called if women rose rooted. And she's also written several other books. It's not her only book. Um, And I believe she mentioned it. I don't think that term is in her book. I think she just maybe mentioned it in passing on a podcast. Um, And I, I, in fact, was taking a class with her this morning and she didn't mention it. So it's not like it's a a word she uses a lot. And I don't know if it was maybe even her. Like sometimes I'm like, was that her? Did it just come to me in some other way? Although I, I think you you might hear her say it. And it's, so it's not, I, I just want to be clear that it's not something that I invented, um, so to speak. Um, although like you, Shannon, like when I heard it or when that, that idea came to me, it definitely felt really important. Um, so the mythic resistance, it, it to me, um, and the way I approach it and the way I guide my communities into this work is that we are going back to our roots, to our remembering, um, to what it means to be a human on this earth. And the myths are a very, um, the myths are a guide point for us to move through that. So myths are the language of a language of our souls. So myths live through, through time. And most people are like familiar with Greek myths because that's something in America that, um, and I think a lot in Western, or I, I don't really like that word Western, but you know, in European and American um, studies, whether it's um, primary or secondary education or in college, you know, we are stuck talking more about the, the Greek myths. Although Ireland, which um, is where I have learned from, and those are specific the myths I deepen into, um, huge, like huge wealth of material or a huge um, um, library of myths. Not that we would have called it a library back then because it was all oral. Um, and they eventually were written down, these myths. Um, so again, coming back to our stories, the stories of our indigenous roots, our indigenous heritage, um, our native roots, um, whether it be DNA. And DNA, like, 
isn't really important. Like you do not need to go get a DNA test to like be a part of this mythic resistance. In fact, it's really like whatever your roots are, you're going to look at your, your myths um, and other myths too, because, you know, we know a lot because we are colonizers here in America. So we, you know, some of us do know some of the Native American myths, which are beautiful and amazing. And this isn't about like, oh, that's their myths and not our myths. It's just remembering that we don't have to co-opt and appropriate others. We can come back to our own and also then find from that place, um, from this mythic place, um, how so much of our stories intertwine. Um, so, if there's a myth here in the Irish tradition, they're, you know, talking to our native friends and, you know, they have a myth that reflects that here. Um, so just like the word, something that, that came up today um, was um, the old woman of the land. So th very simply, and a lot of that is very mythological, the old woman of the land. And if we had um, a Native American friend here, they would be able, to, like, be able to say, oh, yeah, her name is da, da, da. I don't know if it, it's spider, the, yeah. And I don't even want to speak because I don't know enough about their myths. Um, although I would love to have this conversation with a Native person or a Scandinavian person or um, a... Maori person, you know, in Ireland, the old woman of the land is the Kaliak. Um, so from that place, we learn more about ourselves. We don't have to co-opt. Um, and we also become more curious, I believe. I think myths are definitely a threshold to open curiosity to how we have intertwined and how we do intertwine with the rest of the world. Um, going back to myths, um, myths are different than folk tales. Um, myths actually shape um, a cultural and societal identity. Um, and I don't want to get too technical here in this. I don't know. This isn't really, and I'm not a hugely technical person. If you're scholarly and want to go look into that, what's really important to me is how to help us embody that. So not just be in this place of reading them, but actually embody them. And that happens through the imagination, which is really part, a huge part of this mythic um, resistance. So um, with all that background, I'll just briefly say, like the mythic resistance is coming back to our roots to remember how to um, live, take the risk against the status quo to live outside dominant culture um, and to even know that there is a way to live outside of dominant culture and all that that holds, which is um, toxic patriarchy. And I'm, I'm still like, is, is there any patriarchy that isn't toxic? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, um, mythic resistance against white supremacy, all that that holds against misogyny, um, against the um, destruction um, of the environment and the denial of the climate crisis. So by coming back to the myths, um, we can reimagine um, into, into the future um, and resist this, this dominant um, narrative. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting because what I hear you saying in this is that there are two very clear, I'd say, intentions. And one of those is to reincorporate into ourselves our wholeness, to reconnect with what is already already ours, so to speak, that we may uh, be separated from. Um, and then the other, though, is then to, to actually be pushing back against those things that have kept us from that wholeness in the first place or over the centuries that have conditioned us or conditioned ourselves into that separateness. And so it's, in a way, we're coming into a wholeness, we're pushing back against that separateness, and it's all encapsulated in one. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. Exactly. Exactly. Coming back to wholeness. When we remember these old ways, um, we remember who we are and who we, and, and so I feel, yeah, who we are and then remember our wholeness in that. Yeah. 
Yes. And I, and I just, it's so exciting to me that you, you use the term resistance or that we're talking about it in the term of resistance, um, that, that these can be seen as resistance. We think of resistance as uh, often we think of resistance as, as activism, people out in the streets and, and other various things that people will do to push actively against, um, something that we disagree with. But, uh, but looking at it in this term of, um, reaching toward our own wholeness can also be a form. And we'll talk more about what that might look like, this mythic resistance. But I think, you know, that people are so different in what we, how we feel called to participate in resistance. And so just knowing that there are these, these opportunities for delving more deeply into our own myths or our own traditions as a form of resistance feels empowering to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And yeah, there, I think just like you said, helping people realize resistance takes so many forms. And I totally honor those people that are actively on the streets. And that has not been me and is not me today, but um, still actively participating um, in what is possible. Yeah, yeah thank you. Yeah, no, about myths, though, this came to my mind when you were talking. So I, like so many other Americans, did learn in junior high those Greek myths, and we had to learn all about Hercules and Persephone, and I'm sure we had to draw pictures of them. And we learned the myths, but we learned myths, at least I did, as a story, as storytelling, as almost as though we were learning fairy tales written by a people of an ancient time Mm -hmm. that no longer had anything to do with us. I I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that myth is something that our modern society has largely forgotten. And we live according to science and logic and we live according to religion and certainly we live according to our ideologies as well. Um, but when it comes to myth, we even use that word now as a synonym for even for falsehood or even for, you know, a story, uh, something that is not true. So knowing that there is that flavor of the word in our culture, um, I guess what, what, I'm, what I'm curious to know is for people who may be disconnected or dismissive of myth, where is an entry point for them? Where, what, what might be, we be missing by disengaging with myth or by uh, considering myth, correlating myth with falsehood? And what could we gain? You've mentioned this a little bit, but, um, but what could we gain by inviting myth back into our lives by considering it as something that is worth remembering and worth learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. And I love that you brought up storytelling and fairy tales as well. Um, Myth is their story, their origin stories. Um, And they have shaped where we have come from and who we are, even today, even in this modern culture. And I don't know, like, I love that question. And as soon as you said, I'm like, oh, yeah, a lot of times people are like, oh, that's a myth. Like, it's a lie. So I, it's so interesting. And I'm sure it's, it's a reflection of um, the culture that we're in and this um, need, this, this wanting to control, um, because once we're delving into myths and again, this is different and I love storytelling. And I also, a big part of, of what I do is from these myths, then we tell our own stories, what stories come up from that, what wildness is revealed when we listen to this myth in story form. Um, and then continuing to tell our stories. Cause I think there's huge, huge, huge healing that comes from storytelling. I think mm-hmm. storytelling is amazing and so essential. And we, we've forgotten how to listen to stories and also we've forgotten how to tell our own stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of this going back to the myths is, is exactly that remembering our stories and to tell our stories. Um, myth is different from fairy tales and folk tales as well. Um, 
It is, um, yeah, it's like the, the language of our soul. It is once we start delving into it, there's things that we remember and there's guides that are within there, within it. Um, and um, I'll just, do you want me to t- give a very brief example? Yes, please. Okay. Um, without, because it's hard to like jump into a myth without context, but I think I can um, do this one. I'll do my best. Um, this is um, from us in Ireland. We have um, four cycles of myths, and this is from the cycle um, of myths called the Ulster cycle. Um, and it is about um, Lou, who is a god of. Um, light and skill um he he offers to us a way um of the sacred masculine um i'll just leave it there he reminds us that it is possible so he um and all of these archetypes that come up in myths um they hold meaning in and of themselves i mean they definitely are characters in the myths yet they they hold this this essence um, that is still alive today in our culture that that we come again come come up against. So his grandfather, who is was named Balor, Balor of the One Eye, um, he received this omen or this gesh, as we call them, um, in I in in the Irish mythological tradition, that his grandson. Um, would kill him. Mm-hmm. So Baylor did all that he could to make sure Lou was never born. Um, and so there's all these layers of how Lou was born. Um, and but Baylor didn't know that Lou had been born. Um, and Baylor was evil. He was, um, he was basically, even in today's, like if you're reading this myth today, I mean, I'm not going to get into all the details, but he was, he represented capitalism. Um, and um, so Lou basically slayed him, of course, through all these series of events, successfully killed Baylor, um, and by killing Baylor was killing this emblem of capitalism. And this is not revealed in the myth, but this is how we keep these myths alive. This is how we remember this in our body, by going back to these old stories, looking at the symbolism, looking at the archetypes, which is a new word. They wouldn't have called them archetypes then, but but that's what we call them now. Um, And um, remember what is possible. So through all of the odds, um, Lou was born and this emblem of the sacred masculine um, slayed capitalism. Um, so that's me putting my own words to an old myth, but it, it is a way that we can look at these really old stories and remember to re-engage our imagination for what is possible. Hmm. I am so glad you shared the myth because this is what we're talking about. So it really just brings to life this theme, right? Mm-hmm. And even just you telling the myth got me thinking, uh, it just got a cascade of thoughts rolling through my mind, you know, which, which shows right there that the myth is alive, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, it brought to mind a couple of things that I think are really valuable for us today. One is what you just touched upon, which is that in the myths of old, these are human stories that are often universal themes and not just universal themes, but they also tend to contain relevance for us and even translation into a modern understanding. So looking at that particular myth and then translating, using those terms to translate into what you're, you're saying is the divine masculine, the sacred masculine, and then the, uh, the capitalism, which are two terms that are commonly referred to and used in, in various circles today. So it, it's just like we, we suck that myth right out of the, the depths of, of history. And we can use it then to recognize that, f- for one thing, this is time does not begin or end with us. This, this story, the wild stories that we live, the chaos that we live, 
it's been lived before. It's been lived by human beings probably since the dawn of time. And there's a sense of community in that. There's a sense of sort of being, I don't know about maybe being, being held by the past that we're not alone in our fights to try to understand what it means to be human and how to get along uh, in these battles between good and evil. You know, so and then, you know, two other things came to my mind, which are, are along the same lines of translating something that we may feel is old and archaic into something that's relevant today. So one of those is you, the, the idea of storytelling. Now, I have been hearing more and more in just in recent years about the power of telling our stories. And about the healing, the the storytelling circles, even restorative justice circles that are there. Those are storytelling circles and they're not telling stories as in fairy tales, like you say, or, you know, this is this is not stories like in, in a children's book. This is people telling their stories in order to be witnessed, in order to be heard, in order to be healed. And this type of storytelling is starting to be. I think given a little bit of credit for its healing power in a way that myth may or may not be. And so if we just shift that and say, well, myth is story, story, myth telling is storytelling. And, and if someone who is in the, in our, our, our day today and understands the power of the story of, of sharing and witnessing other people's stories, just by making that little translation, between myth and story and, and letting that be a little bit of a um, letting those two words sort of exist in the same space, then that could be an entry point for someone into myth. Also. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so you brought up a couple of um, beautiful points, many beautiful points. Um, one I want to touch on is about looking at myth as archaic. And I think what we, what a lot of us are doing part of, as part of this mythic resistance, even if they're not using those words, it, so ritualists are doing it um, as well. Um, anyone that's delving into their indigenous spiritual traditions right now, I feel like we're doing this work. Um, in fact, we need to be doing this work if we're not. Um, and that is, we, we're not tending to the ashes. So I'm not reading these myths in the original form that they were written down in. I'll leave that to the scholars that I think it's important. And I do like the, I, you do need a foundation, a historical and solid foundation to, to do this work from yet. I'm tending to the fire today. Like I'm not, I'm not interested in totally interpreting what this, what the scholars think about that because Scholars are living up here, which is fine. They're very cerebral. I mean, most of them. I know there's embodied scholars. But where I think the, the beauty and the magic of this resistance is, is embodiment of it. So we're taking these myths in their like original intention. It's not going to be their original words because our brains don't comprehend that. Like, whereas if we're drinking nettle tea... Um, what we're receiving from nettle tea, <laughs> but that's a whole different story that I won't get into because it's very, um, again, it's embodiment and it's not um, this linear thing. Um, so definitely making these stories relevant for today without losing their essence, their truth. And the same with ritual and ceremony. Um, you know, in Ireland, we did not, nothing, everything was oral until the Christian church came. And guess who started writing down all of our stories and our myths? <laughs> the Christian church. Mm -hmm. um, so, and we're in Ireland, early Christian Ireland was pretty secular. I mean, it was very much like it was a monastery. The monks were writing down our stories and our myths. Yet even so, it, they were like universities, like they were places of learning. And um, so the myths were tinged with Christianity. And, and when you're familiar with the myths, you definitely can get like, oh yeah, this is when, this is what the monks added because <laughs> there'll be God or something in there, which is kind of just humorous because they wrote them down. So I'm, I honor that. And also just 
you know, having discernment with, with, with them and helping others seize that discernment. Um, so when we go back to these myths, when we make them new again, make them fresh, keep them fresh for these times, but yet still their essence intact, um, then we remember the, the power of story because these were stories. They are stories as well as their as well as being myths. Um, and I think they, they can be like a threshold, a gateway for us when we experience that. Um, and I don't want to convince anyone, you can be a part of the mythic resistance without reading a myth. You don't have to read a myth to be part of this, this movement. It's more about going back to our, um, our wholeness, as you were saying, going back to the roots of where we have come from and who we are, um, which is outside dominant culture and all those things that, that fall under dominant culture. Mm. Um, there was, I feel like there was another thread I wanted to pick up on too, um, but I'll just leave it there. Yeah. And we can come back to it also if it, if it occurs to you. Um, I, I think one of the things that occurred to me when you were just talking was the idea of the archetype and also this union, uh, you know, this, this union term of archetype, I think of it as a union term and, and how that term is another one that's come into our common discourse a little bit more, a little bit more commonly anyway. And that, that is a very, talk about embodying because this, these archetypes are now something that are often looked at as something universal and that at least in psychoanalysis, but also just in our day-to-day lives, we can look to those archetypes to tell us about ourselves and other people and inform us about these sort of universal ways that that human beings act and and some of the why behind that. And I think that's important to to know when when we're involved in any kind of resistance and also in order to understand how the, how what we're resisting may also be its own archetype, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and then something that, that also I wanted to ask you about, and, and you just touched on it now when you were talking about returning to our roots and whether we read another myth for the rest of our lives, if we are doing the active work of returning to our roots, our indigenous roots or our wholeness and whatever that means to us, that we are part of that resistance that you are talking about. Mm-hmm. And so the question I have is about the work that you have done in Ireland because you've spent many years now living part-time in Ireland and living and learning from that place, from that land, uh, f- with people who are rooted in those traditions uh, ancestrally as well. And I'm just wondering, if ha- what kind of an effect does that have when you're actually learning on the land itself, when you're learning the traditions of that very place? Does that feel different than it feels interacting with those myths from from here and if so is there something that we would we would benefit from mm, is there i should say is there something that maybe you have brought from there to here some kind of gift that that has given you mm-hmm. yeah so many gifts so many um and it is i also recognize it is a privilege that i have been able to live um on that land and have such direct um, connection with the land, with the ancestors there, um, with the people, with the the society. Um, so I've learned a lot about what is possible. And I think anyone who travels internationally, whether if, if it's for a week, um, hopefully longer than a week, but that's normally an American thing. We have a week, let's go. Um, Living, going to another place and seeing how other people live opens up so much possibility for what is possible. And um, coming back here, um, it definitely, they feel different. It feels different here, yet also it has, um, one thing that it has taught me, again, amongst many, is the importance of connecting to the land here as I connect to the land there Mm. Um, and having right relationship with the land, wherever I am, you know, Ireland is not going to take us back. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, um, native people of this land. I wish, I wish, I wish we could give you your land back. Um, that's, that's, I've tried. <laughs> I was hired as a director of a, a garden, a nonprofit over there, and they would not give me a work permit. So, um, yeah. and that is Ireland in her way protecting me. I understand that now in hindsight, like I know I was being protected as much as like they won't let us back. But logistically, you know, <laughs> however many million Americans there are, 300 million, 280 million we're not going to be going back. So what is important for me and for us to remember is how to come in right relationship with the land here. Mm -hmm. And so I, in Ireland, when I'm in Ireland, it happens like naturally because that's where my body knows. That's where my DNA knows. Um, it's, it just, it happens here. I have to, I have to work at it. Um, and it's been, it's been a, a lot of long time intentional work to, to connect to this land in that way. And not, not that I don't, I definitely feel like I connect to the trees and the plants more than to the land herself. And I think it's probably because she has put so many boundaries up because we, what we as white people and colonizers have, have done and can continue to do. Um, yet, coming back into re right relationship with the land where our feet are right now um, is so essential and a big part of this mythic resistance. Um, it is so essential to this healing that, that, that needs to happen um, to the earth and also to the ancestors of this land, you know? Um, yeah. Hmm. Reparations that, that we can make. Um, is that, mm. that honoring and that relationship. So I think that is a, a small offering that I, and not that you need to go to Ireland or any other place to remember that or know that or practice that. I feel like that's just something I learned in Ireland. That's very, like, again, I feel it in my body. I feel it, that, that deep, deep connection. Um, and because I'm such an embodied person and I want to be embodied like how how can we do that here so mm. yeah yeah it reminds me of a a friend of mine who I was talking to just a couple of weeks ago he's of Mexican descent Mexican indigenous descent and he works as a shaman a shamanic practitioner in Mexico and he was here in the U.S. and he said something that has stuck with me ever since he said that everyone who lives in the Rocky Mountain region, he said everyone from Canada all the way down into Mexico in, that lives through the Rocky Mountains, that he sees all of us as sharing the same connection to this land. Because what he was saying is when you're, whether your DNA is connected to this place or not, being born and raised in a place and being literally in contact with the dirt, with, I mean, with the soil, with the plants, with the foods that are grown in that soil, taking those into our body, literally that the, the energy of this place becomes our bodies. And so that there's this, there's this question, you know, about whether we can truly whether we can truly be a part of the place where we live. And while, while it's imperative to honor that we haven't, that, that our, in, that our own indigenous roots are not this place in my, in my mind, you know, as European, as someone of European descent. Um, and also I feel imperative to become familiar with the traditions that, that I am, that my ancestry is rooted in. I have to tell you when he said that, I, it, it, it felt like it healed my heart a little bit. This, this reminder that, you know, mother nature is the planet. Divine nature is the planet and that our bodies are made of nature and that we, the place that we were born in and the soil that has fed us throughout our lives does become part of us. And so it's not that we are foreign bodies on the land. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's much more that we are in, like we are, we are actually sort of 
active outgrowths of this place as well, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and one of the things that I've questioned at times, and I think a lot of people do, which is, let's say you want to study herbalism and there's the opportunity to study the herbs of this land, the herbs of this region, for example, perhaps the bioregion that we live in. Or we could study, we could do a deep dive into a study of a tradition that was a tr tradition of our ancestors. And, and I, my sense is in, in these conversations over time is that it's not that there is a right or a wrong. It's not that, the, that one is, is right for us and one of them is, um, one of them should be off limits to us. And so I wonder, as, as an herbalist, you did mention a little bit about the Native American herbalism and about Ayurvedic herbalism, but what is your sense on that, especially when we're talking about in terms of, of resistance? Because I think that in, in, in hearing you speak about resistance, I'm understanding even herbalism itself as a form of resistance, making our own medicines, growing our own foods, learning how to heal ourselves with plant medicine. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there, and it's, it's both and. I use that word a lot. So just being really clear, when we're coming back into this place of mythical resistance, it is inclusive. So I am talking about Ireland and the myths of Ireland. Um, although if I was talking to a Native person and we delved in, like, what does mythic resistance be to you? Like, how we define it would be, I feel like very much the same, like that resonance is going to be there. Same with herbalism. Like it's not that I wouldn't use or don't use the plants of this land because that's where I live. Like I need to rely on these plants. What is um, interesting is that a lot of the plants that are, important in my indigenous healing tradition of Ireland, um, grow here as well. Some of them we have brought with us, um, although some of them are indigenous here. Yarrow, for instance, is indigenous here just as it is in Europe and in Ireland. Um, so again, it's both and. I think where I believe it's important for people ha to have a distinction is, okay, I am a white woman. Obviously, I mean, looking at me, I am not Asian. Um, I'm not Indian. I'm not Native American. And so when you start to capitalize these other traditions, which that's when the co-opting comes in. So, I mean, when I was in herb school, I learned from an Ayurvedic pr practitioner. Um, I learned from um, an Eastern medicine practitioner, um, a Native American, my teacher, I don't, I didn't study directly from a Native American, but she did. And also she's the one that told me 19 years ago, like, um, you, you know, we need to come back to our own traditions and, and her, because her, Native American teacher told her that. Um, so it is, um, it is when we take from another culture's tradition and then capitalize on that. That's, that's when we've crossed the line. Um, so coming back to our roots, living into those roots to make it a, a to weave a really strong web um, interweaving all of our traditions together. But yet when you use it to your own means in some way that is going to be harmful to the, in, the other indigenous culture tradition, that's, and what, that's what we've done as white people um, for 400 years um, here. So just being really mindful of that. Um, both and yeah I don't want to draw there's no there's no it's very much a fluid there's no gray there, there's no black and white um until you start capitalizing and then mm. then there is yeah. I want to thank you so much for making that distinction Tanya I feel it's one of the it's it's been one of the things that is most present in my mind for the last six months at least very present uh, and yeah. and further back than that as well yeah. is this question of the distinction between learning and appreciate learning and appreciating something and co-opting and capitalizing on it mm -hmm. and 
this has happened in so many ways that I understand even in my own life, ways that I haven't even recognized yet. Yeah. But it it is it is a key distinction that it's 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 not that you know, loving and appreciating and, and wanting to honor and learn from other cultures. Mm-hmm. It's not that that is, <clears throat> that, is that doesn't uh, translate immediately to co-opting. Mm-hmm. But, but when we do, when we do take it on and start either to try to capitalize financially on it mm-hmm. or in any other way in, in trying to capitalize and saying that it is our own. And I think that it can be a fine line uh one of the things that came to my attention in all of the conversations around race racism recently in this country was an article i read that was written by a black woman and she was talking about the the co-opting and the capitalization by white women in particular of the practice of yoga and i i looked at that myself and i thought you know i have recognized the capitalization of yoga for for many many years decades i've recognized that yoga was what we and so many of us have yoga was turned into an industry and taken over by capitalist interests but when i read that article and she put it as also a capitalization by white women of over that tradition in order to use it as a means of making money that was an eye-opener for me because I think as, as white people, as people of European descent, we can, especially if we, if we take issue with, with capitalism in any way, we can, label, we can label that stamp of capitalism on something and saying this is something that's been co-opted by capitalism. This has been something that's been um, financialized, I guess. I don't even know if that's a word. but you know, And, and we, can, we can stop there. But if we just peel a few layers back, mm-hmm. we may very well see that it's not just capitalism, that it's also maybe white capitalism that is underneath it. And there may even be some layers underneath that. So I just, I want to really honor what you said, and I'm still exploring this theme. But we, I think so many of us, uh, I want to say white people, white women, we want to respect the traditions of others. We don't want to capitalize and co-opt them. However, in this system that we live in, it's very easy to start capitalizing and co-opting and and it wasn't our intention because everything is monetized. That's the word I was looking for, monetized. So thank you so much. Although I do like financialized. That, that I, I like financialized <laughs> too. I, I invent words all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, I really appreciate you bringing it up. And it does lead me to one more question. If you have time for one more question. I- sure. Yeah, definitely. And, and can I just kind of say a couple more things about that? And I know we could like go on on all of these. Um, there's there's no easy answer for this, you know, at all. I think it's so much about listening to how it feels for you as you, so discernment, discernment, you know, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the yoga question. Um, I'm not a yoga teacher yet. I've been doing yoga for a really long time and I love, I love the practice of yoga. And I was talking to someone once, um, recently about yoga and there is this really interesting Indo-European link. Um, So, and a lot of our Celtic ancestors actually came, you know, when you look like thousands of years ago came from India. Um, So, you know, I think when you're doing, when you're doing your own stretching practice or, you know, and, and I love going to my rec center, although I haven't for almost a year because my rec center is closed, but, you know, I loved going to a nice yoga class. It's, um, so it's, and also, so it's not about this either or thing. It's just being really aware of, um, how you are using those tools and, um, yeah, yeah. Is it capitalizing co-opting? And also, um, that, when you come back to your own indigenous traditions, spiritual or heritage traditions, all of a sudden you, 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 these things shift. Like 
as well. So you'll find, you might feel like there might be some resistance of like, um, well, and I honor yoga teachers and I'm not, I'm saying if you are yoga, I'm just using this as an example. And if you're a white woman yoga teacher, um, you know, I think there are ways that you can make a living doing that, that don't have to be as appropriative. Um, and, um, Yet when, and I've seen this with students of mine, like they'll be, and we're just going to use, I'm going to continue using the yoga example. Not that this, it's not meant to like, you know, um, bring down yoga or anything like that. It's just when they have come back to these rituals and traditions and these stories and started sharing their own stories, like all of a sudden they realize, oh, you know, me with no Indian DNA, like it feels weird actually doing a puja you know so I think it's this coming it can happen it can be a process it doesn't if you have an ashram that is a huge part of your life like that doesn't mean you have to get eliminate that it's just come back into relationship with a tradition that that might be your own and um, move from that place so um, again it doesn't have to be this either or I think it's very much when you come back to your your roots and these myths that um, you feel it in a different way. Yeah. That was sort of, sort of rambly. <laughs> I actually, no, no. I think it was actually quite cogent. And I, I think that when we're talking about, um, we're talking about white women, but this could be, this could be different people. Uh, it could be, it could be different genders. It could be different colors of people. But I think that what you're saying is exciting actually, because you know, if we are questioning in ourselves, if we are becoming fearful or concerned of offending people, I would say, or of co-opting other people's traditions in a way that looks disrespectful, and, and, we, and we don't want to be disrespectful, here's yet another reason to become active in the mythic resistance that you are talking about. Because to the extent that we can regardless of maybe how drawn we feel to them, but to the extent that we can re-engage and reconnect to our native traditions and indigenous traditions and, and sink into the wholeness of those, my sense is that to the extent that we can do that, that fear and that concern is going to fade away because we're going to be grounded in what we know we are, in where we know we came from, and there's a clarity of that there's a clarity from that then if we want to branch and learn some different things um we may have a sense of confidence in where we come from enough to know that we don't need to co-opt another tradition in order to find that wholeness we we are already whole so if we can start from there yes yeah and that there are like i think people just have forgotten because what the church did to our indigenous traditions so much, so much suppression of those, you know, that we've, go, we've gone to, you know, Buddhism and yoga and Hinduism and native American traditions because they've been written down. They've been practiced, you know, uninterrupted. Um, and so we're, there's a yearning in that in us and those traditions have, have fed that yearning, Yet when we can come back, we can, when we remember that we have our own traditions, then there's that, that sense of this, like this wholeness that, that you keep referring to that's so true. Um, yeah. Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah. So let me, let me ask you one more question, if I could. I, I want to ask you this, and I, I know this, I believe this is something that is important to you uh, in, in returning to dig deeper into the theme of resistance. So, you know, I know that this year with the, the killing of George Floyd and the renewed focus on racial justice in our country, I know you have taken seriously the call for white Americans to face our country's history of racial injustice. And I've seen this in your posts, and I've seen it in your programs mention of for instance, offering scholarships for your courses to Black, Indigenous, people of color. Also, to offer your work in this way, as you said, as one form of reparations to communities of color for the long history of oppression those communities 
have suffered in our country. So I even noticed in looking at your website, you have posted a what you call it a, a pledge of participation to dismantle white supremacy. And um, so, so with all that in mind, it's it's, uh, I'm, and and in this in this theme of mythic resistance, um, I, I understand that what we're talking about as the mythic resistance and our re-engagement with myths and the resistance to say something like racial injustice, that is not separate. This is all part of sort of the same movement mm -hmm. toward embracing ourselves in order to embrace each other. But I'm curious if you have anything that you would like to share about um, the mythic resistance in relation to racial injustice or any any particular myth that you would feel called to share just just anything around this theme that feels um present for you mm -hmm. thank you i um yeah it's it's none of it is separate when we're stepping into the mythic resistance we're looking about all we're looking to all forms of oppression um oppression towards the earth to other human beings um towards ourselves um and when we come back and start tending to ourselves and the earth how the ripple effect that that has um I, and also a lot of us um, who are doing this work say this often as well, that racial justice work, social justice work um, is a spiritual practice. So mm -hmm. anyone that is um, on a spiritual path and they aren't doing this work, um, it's this, I don't, I don't want to like say you're not doing the work, but you're not doing the work. I'm going to say it, um, especially where we are today in this world. I'm, um, I think, and especially the outcome of this election, which is wonderful, yet that 55% of American white women um, did not vote for the new administration, or I'm going to say they voted for something, a person in an administration that represents everything that the mythic resistance is opposing, um, ev everything everything um that um that shows us that um we have a lot of work to do so um and this is um i want to do all that i can to make this accessible for those that are willing to step into this work um, this is deep work this is there's there's no like you show up once a week and you're automatically anti-racist like no this is you are participating in community coming back to community um remembering the value of community and then rippling that out into your own community um so uh, leaving with i would love to leave with with a myth um and this my this is it's called a myth sometimes, and I don't want to get too technical about a myth versus a, a, a folktale. Um, it's the it's this um, a story about the Selkies, the Selkie myth. And um, when I when we worked in this myth this um, this year in my mystery school, um, I really love how we deepened into the lessons of this myth. Um, so the, the Selkies are um, seal women. And in Ireland, in different, like in Scotland, they can be men. Um, although in Ireland, the Selkies are, and it's S-E-L-K-I-E, Selkie. Um, they are seal women. And basically, um, they are women, and not to be binary here, um, although I'm trying to think. Like it could be the, the representation of the, the feminine. So they're... Um, a feminine energy um, represented in the seal. And um, they come up on the shore, these selkies, and they'll remove their skin. And they'll put their skin to the side. And in the, the way the myths are told or the way the story is told in Ireland is, um, and it's, it's a man, um, although we could update this definitely to our times, but in the, in the stories as they're told, um, a man would see the selkie skin and um, 
would f- and beside the the sulky woman and would fall in love like love at first sight with the sulky woman and he would take her skin and normally put it in a closet and would have her for his wife hmm. and a lot of times she would forget who her essence she would forget who she was. She would look at the sea and she would see the, the other seal heads bobbing and their soulful eyes. And she would feel this, this really deep yearning for, for them that like a wordless yearning. A lot of times she wouldn't, she wouldn't really understand what that yearning was about. Um, and then normally how the story goes in one way or the other, um, one of her children, um, after years of being together with this, this man and creating a family, but still having this wordless yearning, one of her children would come and be like, mama, I found this, this leather, this black leather coat in this closet. What is it? And as soon as she would see her skin, she would remember and she would give up what all what we would look at as everything um and it, it doesn't always have to be like sacrifice like this but she would put on her seal skin and she would remember who she was meant to be so mm. and and yeah so i'll just leave it there mm. so putting on our skin remembering who we were are meant to be sounds like a a, a a yearning or a desire that probably so many people all over our country and even around the world can relate to this longing to reconnect with who we really are. So here's to the mythic resistance and its role in helping to make that happen. And I do have one uh, last thing I'd like to do. I I wanted to read a little piece that you wrote in the original um, message you sent out where I first read about the mythic resistance, if you don't mind me reading something. Sure. Yeah, let me um, just read this. So I invite you to join me in the mythic resistance where we actively protect the sacred, the earth, community, the veil that connects us to the ancestors, a place where we eschew capitalism and imagine into a new way of living and being, co-creating with each other and with the earth, where we remember the myths that weave the threads of our indigenous heritage, the roots that interconnect us to the trees and other native ones, human and non-human. Join me in the mythic resistance to listen, to be still, to act in a really old way, made new again. <laughs> mm. Thank you so much, Tanya, for bringing your wisdom and experience and lovely heart to bear on this conversation today. It has truly been a pleasure to have a chance to, to talk with you. And I, I hope along with you that this mythic resistance takes wing. Um, May it heal us inside and out. Our world needs this so dearly right now. Thank you. Thanks for your beautiful reflections as well. Yeah. And witnessing. I hope you enjoyed the inaugural episode of the Wake Up Human podcast with Tanya Reikley. To learn more about Tanya, you can visit her website at dancingwiththewild.com. To learn more about me and the Wake Up Human podcast, you can visit my website at shannonwills.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.